The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning, everyone. As you can see, I am not at Delta this morning due to a scheduling error that I made. Um, I am somewhere else. And I think maybe because I'm in this environment, I'm not with the regular crew and certainly have not been able to uh, worship alongside you and the rest of the church this morning. Just wanted to take a minute and say, I'm really starting to feel that. Uh, In other words, I really miss you, church. I miss being able to praise God in your midst. I miss uh, sharing the Lord's Supper with you, sharing a meal together, um, you know, just worshiping our, our King together. And I long for the day when we will be able to do that all in one place again. So from the bottom of my heart, I do truly miss you all. Uh, But for now, um, we soldier on, right? And we are going to continue this morning in our series through the book of Ephesians. And last week, as you may recall, our author, Paul, had become overwhelmed with the grandeur of Christ and the marvelous, wondrous kindness that he has shown towards us. This song of praise seemed to spill out of the pages with phrases like the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Paul's doxology in chapter 1 crescendos into this truth that Jesus was dead, but God raised him and highly exalted him. And as we round the corner today into chapter 2, you'll notice a seemingly abrupt change of tone. But make no mistake, Paul did not write in a chapter break here, okay? He wasn't done singing the glories of God just yet. Last week, if we walked away knowing that Jesus was dead, but God raised and highly exalted him, this week we will see that we were dead, but God raised and exalted us with Christ. I have no hesitation in saying that the body of verses before us this morning are some of the most vivid and glorious descriptors of the gospel in the whole sum of God's word. I cannot overstate the joy in my heart that I have for the opportunity to unpack them with you this morning. But first, we will hit pause, as Pastor John would say. We will pray thanksgiving for these words and ask the Holy Spirit to bring clarity and praise the teaching of them. So let's pray. God, we give you the glory for the inspiration you brought to our author this morning to to bring these words to us. The glorious truth that are written on these pages. God, we we just give you our thanks for what we read and what we're going to learn this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you bring clarity, that you help us to understand the fullness of what is being written here and what it means for us that we may experience the great love of Christ. God, we thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, I remember driving down the highway and there was a big billboard that read this. This year, thousands of men will die from stubbornness. And I remember chuckling about that a little bit, but then later... I saw an image circling on the internet where someone had taken the liberty to respond with white spray paint. Big old letters said, 
No, we won't. <laughs> uh, and of course, whoever did that was being intentionally ironic, but the ad campaign was meant to highlight a major problem. That for whatever reason, men are statistically more likely to die of preventable diseases and conditions because we simply don't go to the doctor as much as we should. We don't get the regular, annual, necessary checkups that we should, and that means that a lot of problems are not detected, and that could mean uh, something really bad for us in the long run. And I think that illustrates a more universal reality. When we don't know the severity of a problem, or worse yet, we simply choose to believe that it's not that bad, we're totally fine, we don't go looking for a solution. But especially when it comes to matters of our physical health, ignorance isn't bliss. Internally, we may be in serious trouble. So we must step through the likely painful, often uncomfortable door that is diagnosis before we have any hope of seeking proper treatment. You may know that in 2018, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And to that, most are inclined to respond, oh, I'm so sorry, that is awful. And we appreciate the, the sympathy and the kindness in that sentiment, truly. But in actuality, I'm quite thankful that she was diagnosed because if she hadn't been, it doesn't mean that she wouldn't have still had cancer. Her condition would have quietly and slowly worsened and realistically, she probably wouldn't be here today. But because she was diagnosed, we had no choice but to face the raw intensity of the situation and look for how she might ultimately be healed. In the same way, as we begin to unpack in our text this morning, it is absolutely vital that we have a clear picture of our spiritual condition apart from Christ. We must firmly understand how desperate is our need for a Savior, how serious our sin truly is, in order that we might see how great and how truly wonderful the grace of God is. This is a classic, I've got good news and I've got bad news kind of situation, but it's more like I have the most extreme bad news you've ever heard and the most awe-inspiring good news you could ever imagine. So with that, we turn and look at God's Word in Ephesians 2. Now, the first three verses begin with an onslaught of bad news regarding our condition apart from Christ. And I would post to you that there are three conditions that Paul outlines in explaining how serious our situation really is. So this is point one if you're a note taker. By nature, we are dead, enslaved, and condemned. By nature, we are dead, enslaved, and condemned. First, we look at that word dead. And we get that word dead right there from verse one. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, trespasses and sins, those two words, that little phrase as it comes together, it may seem uh, synonymous, like they mean the same thing, but be careful to see the subtle difference between those two. A trespass is a willful step across a boundary. It is acknowledging a rule and knowingly breaking that rule. It is going where we know we ought not to go. It is an active, decisive step to oppose 
the will of God. And sin, on the other hand, although it does rightfully draw to mind the image of intentional disobedience, it can be defined simply as missing the mark. It's an old archery term. It literally means to have missed the intended target. And in respect to God, or his glory and his absolute righteousness, the aim, we all miss the intended target by a long shot. We simply don't measure up to the standard of God's holy perfection. We miss that mark, to put it lightly. And so with that phrase, trespasses and sins, we have two words that are intricately woven together and yet ever so distinct in how they illuminate our natural condition. But in both of these things, as verse 2 tells us, we once walked. And there again, the language seems to bring to mind this image of us happily, gleefully trudging along in opposition to God. Whether it be intentional or we are doing so blindly, we walked. We ever progressed in a constant state of death because of our trespasses and our sins. Now, as you're reading Ephesians and you pass through chapter 2, verse 1, when you see the word dead, it seems to hit pretty abruptly. And I don't know about y'all, but I tend to have a few translations laying around for when instances like this occur, when a singular word just jumps off the page, because I like to see if there's any difference in opinion amongst the really smart people who translate this stuff from the Greek to the English. And if there is a little bit of nuance, where can I find value in those subtle nuances from one version to another? Well, I can tell you, folks, um, <laughs> I checked a whole lot of translations off this one. Most of them I'd never heard of, and most of which I would certainly never put on my own bookshelf. But in this case, all of them said dead. There seems to be no debate here, translation to translation. Each one renders this word the same with the exception of one, but I sent them an email, and this is true. I think we're going to get that one taken care of. <laughs> but if we can all agree that this is really what was meant, why is it that our trespasses and our sins leave us dead of all things? Not damaged goods, not spiritually sick, not stuck in the mire, as one not very good translation <laughs> puts it. Why Dead. Why such an intense word there? Well, Paul also explains this a bit in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when he says that the wages of sin is death. A wage is what we get for what we give. Before a holy and infinite God, perfect in all of his ways, we stand condemned by who we naturally are, sinners. You see, God defends his glory and his holiness with the absolute intensity of his character. God does not merely dislike sin. It is abhorrent and in total contrast to who he is. He defends with jealousy the glory that emanates from him as one who is sovereign over all things. He defends his glory and he destroys, he pours wrath upon the sin that might challenge it. The imperfection, the destruction, the devastation that stands in opposition to his goodness. And at the very core of who we are, we have made ourselves enemies of God. 
the root problem, hear this, the root problem of our sin, the reason that it is a problem to us, lies in the reality that God hates sin. It is everything that he is not, and it is the very thing that threatens to destroy all that he has created to be good. And so, by walking in sin, by willfully choosing disobedience over faithfulness to God, the wage that we earn is the full, unbridled, unadulterated, unhindered, incontestable wrath of God. Under the weight of God's fury, it should come as no surprise that sinners find no hope of survival. Death, nothing less than death, is what we have earned by merit of our own sin. And I want to say, just briefly, um, it is of the utmost importance here that we don't downplay the severity of this statement. That we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We don't get to change God's word as we see fit. We must stay true to what is written, not what we find comfortable, and not try to cram it into whatever theological presuppositions that we bring to the table. Dead, it means dead. You may have heard this illustration that God's glory and his righteousness creates this tremendously wide chasm. On one side, you have God, whose holiness sets him apart from mankind, which is where we are on the other side as sinners. And all of our best efforts to get to him are destined to fail. Each good work is us like taking our best leap across that canyon, but we're never going to make it because we are just too separated by his holiness. The reason that that illustration breaks down is this. While it does help us to see that God is holy and that we are sinners and that we need Jesus to act on our behalf somehow, it breaks down in the very crucial place. If God is indeed across the chasm and we are sinners on this side, we are certainly not jumping. Remember, we are dead. We are just laying on this side of the canyons. Our best efforts to get to God, they don't look like long jumps. They don't look like anything. We are dead and in need of total rescue. What we need is for Jesus to build the bridge that is the cross, to come down to where we are, to raise us from the dead, and then carry us to the Father. And a similar illustration goes like this. You're drowning in an ocean. Jesus, in his mercy and his grace, he throws you a life preserver, and all you have to do is take it, and you'll be saved. And again, that gets so close, so very close to the truth of the gospel, but it falls apart in that same vital place. If you're in the ocean, you're not drowning. You have drowned. Jesus does not throw you a life preserver. He has to leave his boat, descend into the depths, placing himself in mortal and grave danger, raise you up with him, and personally seat you in a place of safety. That is the reality of what it means to be fully, spiritually dead. And as if that word does not pack enough of a punch, we find that Paul moves onward, elaborating further on the seriousness of our sin. 
the following verses here show us that we are not only dead, but we are also enslaved. He writes that we were once following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body. Now, looking through these words, you will find that we can see a variety of slave masters, and none of them seem to be benevolent. First, we are enslaved to the course of the world. The world stands in a natural state of brokenness. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to go their own way, attempting to establish a new order in which they were themselves gods, all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, says Paul in Romans 8. Now, we know that all around us, corruption and sin abounds. All you have to do is simply look up. One of the reasons that I so firmly believe the Bible is that it paints the most accurate picture of humanity and the world around me. It seems to affirm what is plain and obvious. The world is not as it should be. Even that which is outside of our control. Look what is happening right now. The pandemic. People losing their loved ones to the virus. Some are losing their jobs and facing financial crisis. It ought to be clear that to follow the course of the world is to walk willingly into destruction. And yet we seem to be captured by it. We seem to crave that which will ultimately only bring harm to us. And that is to follow the temptations of the world. Whatever that looks like to you. It may be your guilty pleasure. It may be that little sin that you allow yourself. You think it's a small thing, but in light of God's holiness, no sin is permissible and none will be excused apart from Christ. You see, you think, well, God won't like this, but eh, there are worse things. That is the mindset of someone who is willfully walking in sin. The course of the world, to be enslaved to it, is to be enslaved to its highly attractive temptations. Hence why it's so easy to fall slave to its luster. We also see in these verses that we are enslaved to Satan. The devil, the great enemy of God, the one who deceives. And in order to spare you a word study that would only be pretentious and overlong, prince of the power of the air, spirit, of, uh, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, those phrases would have easily been understood to mean Satan by the original readers of this letter. Apart from Christ, we are enslaved to one who intentionally, with joy in his heart, turns your eyes from the one who offers salvation. Enslaved to the one who wants to stir up bitterness in your heart and disobedience in your soul against your God. The one who will do whatever it takes to capitalize on your negative inclinations. He will leverage your weaknesses in fighting sin against your relationship with God. 
And if your eyes, they remain firmly on the things of God, the enemy will do whatever he can to start slowly turning your head away. And every inch of distance that he creates between you and your Savior is a victory for him. He will do whatever it takes. He will tell you whatever lie you might believe, whisper in your ear whatever doubt he thinks could take root. And perhaps the most effective tool that he has is precisely what Paul lists next. The passions of our flesh and the desires of our bodies. Now, there are many things that God calls good, even things that he gives us from his own hand that can quickly become not good. When we elevate a good gift of God to a place in our lives where it becomes more important to us than God himself, we not only misstep but we set forward on a trajectory that leads only to our own enslavement. Paul Tripp posed the question this way. Could it be that desire for a good thing has become a bad thing because that desire has become a ruling thing, the kind of thing that might enslave us? Food and drink, sexual intimacy, rest, all of these are created by and gifted by the Father, but each of them can be perverted and abused outside the boundary lines that God puts on them. Enslavement to food it gives way to gluttony, the idolatry of finding satisfaction in a stuffed belly. Enslavement to sex, it gives way to pornography and adultery, or even just bitterness between a husband and a wife. Enslavement to rest gives way to apathy in laziness, wherein we do not live out our calling as those who have been given the ministry of reconciliation. These passions of flesh, they fit neatly into that trespass category from verse 1. You might start by just towing the boundary, but you certainly know where the boundary line is. It's where the scriptures draw it. It's where the Holy Spirit brings conviction to your heart. But rather than choosing holiness... In reverence to God, your enslavement causes you to chase after the very thing that leads to your destruction. And over time, that enslavement takes root, takes hold more strongly, and that decisive, willful disobedience becomes the norm. And the very uncomfortable but undeniable truth written right here in verse 3 is that our condition, one of spiritual deadness, and enslavement is who we are by nature. In the highly unlikely event that Paul has not made this point clearly enough, he issues one final assertion regarding the depth of our sinful nature. He states that we are, by nature, children of wrath. And the word that I use to summarize that phrase, children of wrath, is condemned. I say condemned because that is the consequence for having been born into a lineage of sinners. Children of wrath, it doesn't refer to that moody toddler that you might have running around your house. No, this is inheritance language, similar to what we can find all over the book of Ephesians, except in this case, we get a glimpse of the inheritance that we naturally deserve. Now, 
Take for instance, if you're the child of a wealthy tech mogul, congrats, your inheritance is probably going to be pretty sweet. You were born into wealth. You are a child of wealth. If you were born into a family with a long history of addiction, you might inherit a natural inclination to those same vices. Your inheritance determines your inheritance. So in the case of mankind, Paul paints a picture of a family tree that is sinners, sinners, sinners all the way up. In Romans 5, he explains that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And through him, death spread to all mankind because all have sinned. And when you are born into a family of sinners, your inheritance is that which sinners naturally merit. The wrath, the condemnation of a perfect and holy God. And so, apart from Christ, indeed, we are children of wrath. Church, these first three verses, they are meant to strip away any hope that we think we have in ourselves. You simply cannot read God's word, these verses in particular, and come away thinking, I'm a pretty good person. I've got this. You know, God, God's probably cool with me. I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but, you know, he and I will probably just laugh about all my imperfections and my screw-ups someday. No, we, we are meant to step through the door and feel the weight of this diagnosis. To look at the reality of our sin and be brought to our knees. To acknowledge we are hopeless and in need of total rescue. That we might begin to look for the one who might bring total rescue. Hear me out. I think that one of the largest obstacles between us and a thriving relationship with God is our unwillingness to accept how desperately we truly need him. You see, people who think they're good don't need saving. The spiritually healthy do not need healing. If we believe that we are mostly good people who are capable of the occasional offense against God, we will continue in our attempts to stand righteous before him upon the merit of our own good works. And in so doing, we will instead discover that we are not, in fact, righteous, but dead, enslaved, and condemned. So, thanks be to God for the extremely bad news of verses 1 through 3. For now, we have not but to look for a Savior. I don't know if you've ever fallen asleep outside on a hot day. Maybe you're sunbathing, ball cap over the eyes, or sitting in a hammock, something like that. I have uh, a number of times because I like to nap. <laughs> but when you wake up and you come out of that, the hat comes off and you open up your eyes, it's really an overwhelming kind of experience. The environment around you feels a little ethereal. Everything looks kind of blue for some reason, a little hazy. And your eyes, they just were not prepared for the dramatic shift from utter darkness to the overabundance of light that is now just flooding into your eyes. The contrast is, is just too intense, and it feels almost unreal, kind of dreamlike for a moment. 
friends, as we wade into verses four through nine, I hope that you feel the incredible contrast between where verses one through three left us and where the remainder of the text takes us. One through three argue that we were by nature dead, enslaved, condemned. Verses four through nine, this is point two, say that we are by grace made alive, saved, and exalted with Christ. We are by grace made alive, enslaved, exalted with Christ. Now, now that's a bit more of a shift, more than a slight change in tone. That is running a thousand miles an hour in the other direction. That is God bringing us to a completely different kind of place. And do notice, as we walk into this incredible, wonderful descriptor of the gospel here, Paul starts by rooting this good news in what? The character of God. The character of God is the basis for the good news that is to follow. It says this, But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God, he is rich in his mercy. There is no wanting for mercy when it comes to the storehouses of God. He abounds in mercy. And that word, mercy, it stirs up this idea that God has the power and the desire to withhold that which we naturally deserve. He can dig deep into the eternal wells of his mercy, and though all we bring to him is sin upon sin upon sin, he lavishes us with mercy, mercy, mercy. Time after time, we prove who we naturally are. We are disobedient to God's will. We are slave to our own obsessions. We're idle factories, and we seek satisfaction in the things of earth rather than in the glories and the riches of God. And because that is true, our destruction would be just, and our Father could, he wouldn't have to withhold his mighty swift hand, but he chooses to do so. Instead of holy fire and final death, he rains down mercy upon those whom he has predestined for adoption as sons and daughters. And, and you may wonder, I, I certainly do, why? If the due punishment for sin is death, why show mercy? And if you're anything like me, you'll be delighted to discover that the answer is impossibly simple. It's just this. Look there at verse 4. Because of the great love with which he loved us. God does not show his mercy begrudgingly or because he wants some company in heaven. He does it because he loves us greatly. There's a song we've sung on occasion here at Delta simply titled, The Love of God. And in that song, you can find a vivid illustration of God's love. It goes like this. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans all dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole of God's love, 
though it be stretched from sky to sky. God's love, it knows no bounds. It is without end or limitation. Even when he peered down from his great throne to see that all of creation had been corrupted, that the inner workings of our hearts were nothing but evil and despair, and we coveted glory for ourselves rather than seeing his glories, even in the midst of seeing that brokenness, God declared his unending love for us by way of showering us in his mercy. Please don't miss that little hook at the start of verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Having painted an all too vivid picture of our depravity in verses 1 through 3, we see that language return, but this time in the context of God's wondrous love. Yes, you, even you, dead though you may be, in an act of immeasurable kindness, God acted decisively on your behalf. And what did he do? He made you alive together with Christ. He made you alive together with Christ. Look back into chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, or sermon from last week, and you'll see this, that according to to the power of his great might, God raised Christ from the dead. The resurrection is the absolute cornerstone of our faith. Without it, we have no faith. Our faith is in vain, as Paul would say. We look to the resurrection as being the singular greatest moment in all of Scripture, and indeed human history, that Christ was dead, final death, and the power of God raised him to life, thus confirming his lordship, thus affirming all that he claimed to be, stamping out death, declaring victory over sin, and conquering that which would enslave us. So think about what is being said here. In the same way that God raised Christ from the dead, so too we are raised from death to life with Jesus. He took what was fully dead, and he just made it alive. If you're ever curious or you're ever asked, why is the resurrection so important? Well, among numerous answers to that question, you can simply say, because I get to partake in the resurrection too. I was dead, but because Jesus was raised, I too can be granted resurrection life. That's good news. That is fantastic news. And we're still not done. As if that good news alone was not cause for eternal praise and rejoicing, we see that God was not finished with his good work. Indeed, we were made alive. And then God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. Chapter 1, again, it ends with this unfathomable image of Christ's exaltation. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And now we see in verse 6, chapter 2, that we are brought along with Christ to that very same place. What an undeserved gift. What love untold. What unmatched kindness that the Father has shown to us. And further still, we are told that in all of these things, 
God acted with intention. There is purpose in his plan. Why would he bestow mercy when destruction was earned? Why bring life to the, to the sinner where death is merited? Why exalt us to a place of honor when truly justice would have been served if we were simply abandoned? So that, look at your word, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's more inheritance language that we're seeing here. God has done all of this so that we might enjoy the spoils of his grace. That we might be rightfully given as those adopted into the family of God an inheritance that is beyond comprehension and greater in value than all the riches of this world. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always. Church, that for a moment we might glimpse the heavens and see what ultimately becomes of that foretaste of glory divine. This is what it means to be shown the grace of God. See, if mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. And that is why we see that word grace pop up twice, once in verse 4 and here again in verse 8. By grace you have been saved. God not only withholds his wrath towards you as the due penalty for your sin, but moreover he delivers eternal life and the infinite, incomparable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you. Look, the doctrine of grace, it ought to humble you to your core. To appease the wrath of God, God himself stepped down from his throne, bore the cross, and granted life to dead and hopeless sinners. What did you contribute to this great exchange? Paul answers in verse 8. This is not your doing. It's a gift. It's not a result of your works. You've nothing to boast in here. Remember, your nature is to produce only the kind of works that earn condemnation. One brother put it this way. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. But God, but God saves you despite your ungodliness. Isn't that the truth that we see here in verses 8 through 9? Over and over, the message that is spilling out of the pages is this. You did nothing, God saves you. You did nothing, God saves you. You did nothing, God miraculously saves you. So, boast not in yourself, but rather, to borrow the words from prophet Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. Boast in the Lord, who has given you his own righteousness as a free gift, which you receive simply by placing your faith and your trust in him alone. Now, as Paul winds down in verse 10, for a moment, he shows us just one way that we might respond rightfully to the great truth of the gospel. He says that we are God's worksmanship 
created in Christ for good works. And that's our third and final point this morning, and it will be brief. In Christ, we are created for good works. Now, if that little phrase, good works, perks up your ear a little bit, good. You've been paying attention because the undeniable message of verses 1 through 9 is that no good works of a sinner will earn or merit salvation. So, having belabored this message over and over again of our absolute desperation and the sole power of God to save us by his grace, why turn now and say, oh, by the way, you should do good works? Well, it is vital that we understand the proper ordering of events if we are to come away with the right view of the gospel. Notice here, it is only those who are first created in Christ Jesus who are commissioned unto good works that God has prepared. That is to say, when our sin has been forgiven, when our debt has been paid in full, when we are adopted into the family of God, and when we are created anew as participants in the resurrection, only then have we the power of the Holy Spirit to live as those who've been given the righteousness of God. And upon receiving his salvation, God already has your post-conversion itinerary mapped out. He has work for you to do. You may have heard it asked, well, if God is all sovereign, if he prepares these things beforehand, if he indeed does predestine, well, what reason do we have to do anything at all? And I understand, I sympathize with just the sheer honesty of that question, but it is very misguided. Why do anything at all? Why share the hope of the gospel, the lost people around you? Why care for the orphan and the widow? Why serve others in a spirit and love and humility? Because that's exactly what God has called you to do in his authoritative word. If anything, take heart that he has prepared works for you to do. Because if God has hand-selected these works, you can rest assured that they are going to bring him maximum glory. And you can be certain that he will empower you to see them through to completion. In the same way that we receive the free gift of God's salvation by faith alone, so also we walk in faith as those awaiting our final day of glory. And praise God that we aren't left to figure out a game plan for ourselves. He has created us anew in Christ by the power of his wondrous grace and in love he personally paved the road to glory, and it is laden with the good works that he has prepared beforehand. Glory be to God, our Father. Well, church, this morning, as we reflect on the scripture read and the word preached, I have just three very quick questions for you to consider, or perhaps to discuss with your families. The first one is this. Is your faith in the grace of God, or is it in yourself? Again, it's, it's my hope that at the very least you come away from these words saying, I can't do this myself. I am not naturally righteous. I am not, in my heart of hearts, just a good person. I need a Savior. 
And if you are trusting only in yourself, your ability to get yourself to God, you have to remember that the natural state you'll find yourself in is one of spiritual deadness, complete desperation, hopelessness. But if your hope is in Jesus, it is a hope that is imperishable, undefiled, is kept in heaven for you. It has the power of the holy and almighty God. So if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, I say quite simply to you, sinner, come home. Be welcomed into the loving arms of the Father. And secondly, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who are living faithfully as those who have been given his righteousness, as by simply like a litmus test, let me ask you this, do your actions and your works, do they look like the kind that God has prepared for you? Are you living in holiness as Christ is holy? Are you seeking to faithfully look to your God for the empowerment of the Spirit to walk in righteousness? Does the fruit of your life match the tree, the faith that you claim to have? And if that's a, if that's a question that's, that needs testing, find a brother or sister in Christ. Zoom call them, whatever you have to do to confess your sin and to get those and to have those works align more closely to those which God seems to have prepared for you beforehand. And if you don't know the answer to that question, that is what you ask a brother and sister in Christ. Do you see Christ's holiness in me? Do you see my life? Does my life seem to match the calling that I've been called to? We help each other out. That is what fellowship is, that we help each other live as those who have been saved those who have been redeemed by the blood of the cross. Lastly, in light of the fact that you have been saved entirely devoid of merit, how can you find a way to humbly and lovingly serve others this week? I know we're in weird times. The pandemic has us all out of whack, but I will say this. I have seen people in this church, in this body of believers, step up and love people in ways that are unbelievable to me. I am so thankful. I am so encouraged to see the ways that we have found to serve one another. And I've been challenged by that personally in many ways. This week, in light of the fact that you have been shown an eternal kindness by God, how can you reciprocate that horizontally out into the world around you? Whereas your, your entire affection, your affinity is to God, how might you also love your neighbor as yourself? I, church, I believe that you're going to do that well. I've seen that done well, and I'm grateful for that. Church, I miss you. I love you. Let's pray. What love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. Father, you, you have seen us. You search our hearts, and you know that what's in here is not naturally good but you have reached through that wall of desperation. You have come down from your throne. You have sought us and you have bought us. By the blood of the cross, we are redeemed. Help us to live as those who are redeemed. Show us the, the road to glory, so to speak. Show us those good works that you have prepared beforehand that we might walk faithfully, that we may strive in perseverance to the end. God, and, and honor you and bring glory to you by abiding in you, by trusting in your word. Father, we praise you. We give you all the glory for the great work that you have done in us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.